and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And hello to all of you new and also regular listeners out there. So what is coming up in today's episode? We have a topic that is very exciting to me. It is grass, which doesn't sound very exciting, but I'm going to basically try and sell you the virtues of grass in your garden. Yeah, because everybody's been doing no mo mate, which is brilliant. But if you've done no mo mate and you've only ended up with grass... And here we're going to have a discussion about whether it's grass or grass. Yeah, we're trying to get diversity across in this podcast. <laughs> so I'm saying I'm, I'm for the grass. I mean, grass camp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, if you've ended up just with grass, then uh, it's not a problem because grass is just absolutely fantastic in its own right, as we will find out later. Exactly. And today's Native Plant of the Week is Sanguisorba officinalis which you will actually find in grassland. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Really yeah, a lovely is. colour. And then we're going to hear from a gardening correspondent today as well, which is the Mighty Moth Girl. Hello, Mighty Moth Girl. Looking forward to that. Well, shall we start, though, with our sightings and news? Yes. What have we seen in the last couple of weeks? We, we sort of realised recently that we haven't mentioned birds very much. And one of the reasons for that is because they seem to have disappeared from our, our suburban garden, haven't they? The same thing happens every year in our garden, basically, doesn't it? They yeah. just have a summer holiday or something and clear off. We think they're all busy raising families. And by they all, we actually just talk about our resident sparrows because they're the most frequent visitor to our garden. And it's really horrible and quiet without them. So I really hope they do return. But we have seen our resident wood pigeons because they don't seem to be going anywhere. And even better, we were outside having dinner one nice sunny evening and we got the show of our life in wood pigeon sex. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it was really funny. They, uh, well, there was a pair of them, obviously, and they were just sitting so close to us on our neighbour's roof. And we watched the whole sordid affair from flirting to feeding, which was actually really interesting. I did not know wood pigeons showed that kind of behaviour. Yeah, well, of... so the male is obviously mm. regurgitating food yeah. for the female. It's pretty hot. So the female's like got its beak inside the mouth of the male. Yeah. And it's just guzzling down whatever the male's bringing up. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really fascinating to watch. So maybe we'll be getting some baby wood pigeons soon as well. Yeah. <laughs> but also we see They seen... do this incredibly funny surfing thing down the roof. I mean, they can fly, but they just look like sometimes they forget that they can fly. So they can get from point A on the top of the roof to the feeders by flying. But instead, they like to sort of surf down the roof until they get to the bottom, look like they're about to fall off the guttering and then panic and flap their wings. They are so entertaining. And to be honest with you, I think I feel like I love them a little bit too much because I know they're a really common species, but they're just so funny and a bit stupid. And I just feel (laughs) a bit sorry for them, even though they do eat all the seed we put out. But I forgive them for that, just for their uh, entertainment value. I've been having lots of cups of tea in the garden at breakfast time and I've really enjoyed seeing just how many buzzing insects there are in our really tiny garden. It's been wonderful to see, but we actually both of us noticed a type of bee that we we couldn't identify, could we? It was like feeding on a geranium flower and it had this really weird habit of sort of sticking its butt in the air um, when it fed and we sort of noticed this bee and then looked it up. And what was it? It was a patchwork leafcutter bee. Quite an easy to recognise species once you you know know what you're looking for it's got a bright yellow sort of belly underneath but the way it sticks its bum up in the air while it's feeding from flowers is just hilarious but we have seen we knew leafcutter bees were in the garden because we've seen the perfect sort of semicircles taken out of the leaves of various different things haven't we yeah and something i've noticed this year just in again in our garden but also in other people's gardens in our customers gardens is how they will take these cuttings out of various species you often see it in roses but i've noticed it loads and loads this year in just the broadleaf willow herb which is just a really common weed if you like and they seem to really go for that leaf or they have done this year anyway and they use those to sort of um plug their their the cavities that they leave their their eggs in and their larvae with a little food parcel don't they so yeah that's right and if you, most of you will know about bee hotels and hopefully lots of you have them and you should now start to see the green caps on some of the holes that those leafcutter bees are actually using for their nests Cool, 
well, that's quite a short sightings for this week, but we did do a really long episode last time, so I think we should we should probably give people's ears a bit of a rest. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I think you've got some news today, haven't you? We've got one piece of real news, and then I'm also going to give a uh, sort of just an update about the podcast. I was looking back at what we've been doing the last couple of months and which things are working, which things aren't. Uh, one thing that I was doing before was I was making a, a calendar, wasn't I, of all the different events that were coming up, and that took a load of work and nobody was clicking on it, so I've basically dumped that. <laughs> but what's great is that lots of people are following the links in the show notes, so we're definitely going to keep that going because, yeah, you can see the, the, the stuff we're talking about, people are, yeah. are clicking on and finding out more about, which is fantastic because that's the whole idea of the podcast, really. So when we talk about specific events, then we'll leave a link for that in yeah, exactly. the show notes so you'll still know about it. And in the same vein we've got a list of websites that are useful for wildlife gardeners and I've just updated that as well. If you are looking for one of the specialist societies or or an organisation that does something around wildlife gardening that you're interested in, whether it's what to do with hedges or organisations specifically about trees or specifically about spiders or whatever it is, um, then I've got a long list blog post with everything that you should need to know on there. But I keep finding these new specialist societies all the time because <laughs> there's a, a society for everything. So I've just put on the British Earthworm Society. They've just gone on the list today. I don't know why they weren't before. No, well, exactly. So <laughs> if you actually go on that list and you see one of these societies that is sadly missing from the list, then please do write in and let us know. And then we're on to the exciting thing. So we're going to talk about some upcoming guests that we've got coming on the podcast We've just had Nick Chu from Bristol University, which was absolutely brilliant. And looking more at the entomological line of things, we've got Dr. Ian Bedford coming on the podcast in a couple of episodes. Really excited about that. Yeah, he's been on loads of other podcasts as well. He used to work for the John Innes Centre, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And he's sort of an expert entomologist, but his level of knowledge is absolutely incredible about the sort of the creepy crawlies that actually come into your garden. And also the research that's ongoing. He's really, I think he's really quite a candid person around that. He, he likes to share the information a lot. I'd really recommend, actually, if you, I mean, we'll be covering some of the same things, but if you want to hear more from him, he's at the end of every Roots and All podcast. But he's also, there was a whole episode with him. He was the main guest on the Garden Organic podcast, wasn't he, a couple yeah. of weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah, so that's really worth going and listening to. And then after Ian... Uh, a couple of months again after that, we've got Helen Bostock from the RHS coming on the podcast, who's one of their wildlife wizards and is one of the key people in the Plants for Pollinators and Plants for Bugs projects as well. So we're actually going to down to interview her at Wisley in the new wildlife garden down there. So we're really, really excited about that as well. Not at all an excuse to go back down to Wisley and uh, see the bits we missed when we went. No, that's right. <laughs> we were there about two or three days before the whole hilltop thing opened because they've yeah. got that new wildlife garden down there. It's brand new and it's just opened in the last couple of weeks and we missed it by a hair. So yeah, really looking forward to getting to that. We are also going to be guests ourselves on another podcast. Oh yeah, that's this weekend, isn't it? Well, well I don't know when it's coming yes, out. that's true. Yeah, if you don't know um, Jack Perks' podcast, it's called The Bearded Tits Podcast. It's absolutely fascinating. He's a wildlife photographer and videographer. Specialising in fish. Yeah, and like we said, he's got his own podcast, which is really worth listening to. So I, I do recommend going and listening to all his different episodes. But yeah, we're actually going out to sit in his garden for an afternoon and to discuss which plants are best for wildlife, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, so we'll be sure to be sharing that with you guys as well when we've recorded it and when he's released it. And finally, on the 12th of August, which is a Thursday... We are finally getting around to doing our special Q&A episode. Yeah, we sort of put this out there quite a while ago and we said when we were going to get to, what was it, 20 questions that we would answer all your questions on wildlife gardening. And I think we're, we're almost there. We've not had masses of questions. So if you do have a question, please do get in touch. But we've decided that rather than just doing it in the podcast, that we would put ourselves out there even more yeah. and put ourselves on a live YouTube uh, event. So yeah, you can either give us a question in advance of that, or you can even better tune in and ask us a question and, uh, and hear all the answers as well. Yeah, so we'll be spreading the link for that far and wide closer to the time. It'll be sometime in the afternoon around, or evening, sorry, about 7.30, something like that. Join us and yeah, throw any questions you've got at us. <laughs> cool. Is that it for the news then? Well, that's it for the podcast updates. Oh, yes. Yeah, and then we've got some proper news as well. Which you're also delivering because I think I'm talking for most of this episode otherwise. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so I was on Twitter the other day and I saw the Tree Council, who are a brilliant charity, they basically stand up for trees really in 
urban and suburban environments in particular they are actually giving out free trees but particularly free orchard trees to schools cool yeah so lots of different organizations like the woodland trust i know have been doing this for quite a few years they send out hedging packs and um, they can send out larger packs of several hundred trees actually if you've got room for a, a small copse at your um at your school but the tree council are sending out yeah these orchard packs or fruiting hedgerow packs now the thing is you have to apply they'll send them out in the autumn and winter but you have to apply in advance so that's why i thought it'd be worth bringing it up now because they've got one application that is going to be up soon it's i think the end of the application is sometime in this month in july but then they've got a second application slot that opens i think it's between august and october or september and october i can't remember exactly we'll put all the links into the show notes but if you have a family if you've got kids that are in a school and you think that they would like some free trees and a free orchard then go ahead and just apply if you've already got some trees from them you can't apply again but yeah lots of i mean there's tens of thousands of schools out there aren't there so go ahead and orchards are absolutely fantastic for wildlife first of all all trees are good because they've just got an absolute mass of leaves you know for lots of different caterpillars and things to eat but you get loads of value from a tree because you get the flowering in the spring and then you get the fruit in the autumn as well so it's great if you can pick the fruit of course but you know if you don't end up picking it all then the windfalls are absolutely great for the birds and then they support loads of other insects as well yeah and we were saying plant more plants so what's better than a free plant And then coming back to the Woodland Trust, again, it's worth mentioning for their school packs, which are more, they're not fruiting trees, they're just regular hedging packs or deciduous trees for, you know, whatever space you've got in your school, they do different size packs, then again, you have to apply in advance for those. So get on their website now, and then they'll be sending them out into the autumn and winter. Links for all of that will be in the show notes. If you have a family, then encourage their school to get involved. Love that. So yeah, let's move on to this week's topic of the week. Okay, so as I said earlier on, we are going to be talking all about grass. And the reason why we're doing that this week is because, as Ben said earlier, we've all lived through No Mow May. Hopefully loads of you have done it. And hopefully a lot of you are now embracing knee-high July, which is one of my favourite terms. But what we've seen on Facebook and other various places is that a lot of people who wanted the ideal wildflower meadow to come up out of nowhere, a lot of you have only got grass and there's a bit of a disappointment. So... We thought that in this podcast, we would fight the corner of this very varied and beautiful plant family. That's the grass family, which is also known as the Poaceae. So it's going to go back to the basics and answer the question, what is grass? Green stuff. Yeah, I think that's what most people probably think. <laughs> but I would say... Or that, brown stuff. <laughs> yeah, depending, right on, depending yeah. on how drought it is. But most of us, no matter how new we are at gardening, will probably have some inkling as to what a grass is and how it's different to other plant types. Most of us would be able to describe the long, slender leaves and also how you can cut it and it doesn't seem to kill it, which wouldn't necessarily be the case for other plants. Yeah, I think lots of us intuitively know that if you mow grass and lawns it tends to be fine, but if you mow your shrubs they tend not to survive so well. Probably not so happy, exactly. So to start with, we wanted to get some good botany out there, being the plant geeks that we are. Now, all flowering plants, of which grasses are actually included, although most of us wouldn't necessarily think of them as having flowers, that are actually divided into two separate groups. There's the monocotyledonous plants, bit of a mouthful, and the dicotyledonous plants. Now, I'm probably going to stumble over that in in future sentences, so I'm just going to abbreviate it to monocots and dicots. Those are the two distinct plant groups. And that's what you often hear people saying, isn't it? They say monocots or dicots, not the whole word. Now, all grasses are monocots. And in general, most monocot plants differ from dicots in really distinct ways. Now, some you need a microscope to see. So I'm going to just stick to the most obvious ones that you can just go out into your garden right now and spot. Firstly, the veins in the leaves of monocots are actually parallel and they're not branched. So if you think of something like an oak leaf, I think even a child might be able to draw like the branching veins of an oak leaf. It's just very well known. So grass leaves are not like that. They run parallel to each other. 
And secondly, the stems of most grasses lack the ability to increase their diameter or grow by producing wood and bark. Yeah, not truly woody. And we're no. going to have to park bamboos here. It's, and palms as well. So, yeah, but, they're yes. not, it's, not re- it's not wood botanically in the same way as an oak wood is wood. But certainly the grasses you find in the UK are not woody structures. You yeah, can't... there's no native bamboo, is there? No. Now, the biggest difference which characterises monocots and dicots is at the embryo stage. And the embryo is the part of the inside of a seed which contains all of the precursor tissues of that plant. It also contains something called the cotyledon, of which there can either be one, i.e. mono, or two, so di. And the cotyledons are the first part of the plant to actually emerge from the seed when it germinates. So from the one cotyledon of, the, of any monocot, one leaf will emerge, making the distinction immediately visible. Yeah, so the thing is, if you planted a seed of a grass, when it germinates, you'll see one leaf come up. But if you grew something like a broad bean, it comes up with two leaves. I'll just mention as well in selling the virtues of grass, because I think this is quite important, that the Poaceae family, that's the grass family, also includes corn, wheat and rice. So if you enjoy eating food like pasta, bread, sweet corn and having rice with your curries, then or even if you enjoy eating the farmed animals that some of us eat, it's a pretty important group for humans. So collectively, the grasses that we cultivate food directly provide just over half of all of our dietary energy. That's a hell of a lot of calories. Yeah, and we've been farming them for thousands and thousands of years. Another important distinction of grasses is that the growing point, or the meristem is also what it's called, is at the bottom of the leaf blade and not at the top. Essentially, this is why grass can actually just be grazed or, as we all do in our gardens, mowed without being killed. It simply regrows from the base. And this makes it such a remarkably resilient plant family. And it's probably something to do with the fact that they are also the most widespread plant family that we know of. And they exist in all manner of conditions across all continents and also including aquatic ecosystems as well. So now we all know exactly what a grass is. Let's see exactly why it's good for wildlife and why we should be growing it in our gardens. So as a material in itself, it's just a really fantastic thing for birds. And I think a lot of us wildlife gardeners know that moss and hair and maybe even sheep's wool, which we actually put out in our garden for the birds, are really great nesting materials for lots and lots of our garden birds. But we actually often overlook the simpler things. And long dry grass is often the backbone material for a lot of different nests when it's carefully woven together. You'll see this in the nests of blackbirds, robins and also song thrushes. They make a little cup, don't they? And then they line that with the mud and maybe feathers and other things to make it more cosy. But grass really is like the main structural element. If you've got cultivated grasses for like an ornamental border and things like that, often you don't want to cut them back too early, especially Mm. for um, some of them you want to wait until you see the growing tip in the spring and then cut them back. But when you do finally cut them back if you have to and you clear all that stuff away maybe just leave a pile of it somewhere in your garden and allow the birds to get at it later in the spring and then obviously you know once the the main breeding season is pretty much done with then you can bag it all up and compost it in addition to those birds also sparrows so our beloved house sparrows that hopefully are going off and making sparrow babies right now they they do often take advantage of holes in houses and roofs as their main shelter but to make that space more comfortable for their family they actually stuff those holes with grasses as well as being a really fantastic material it's also obviously when it's growing a really really fantastic habitat and that's what we were trying to get across We were talking about habitat gardening and grassland is a really specific type of habitat which can just be so fantastic for all manner of different species. And those different species and different types of animals rely on that structure so that there's long fronds of leaves coming up from the ground for their homes or from protection from predators as cover and of course as populations of creatures which use grass are bolstered so the populations of their predators are also helped. Yeah, so if you think of a like a meadow if you forget about the actual flowers 
for a second just the structure of it the fact that it's got loads and loads of tall stems and things can crawl around at the base without being seen exactly the same benefits come from just grass you know even if you didn't have the flowers you'd still get all that structural diversity exactly it's like a jungle down there yeah and in particular mammals we don't often talk about mammals so far we've we've really gone down the insect route so far but they're so important we've got uh, loads of mammals coming up later in the autumn good. by the way yes they, they will make a show <laughs> we've realized yeah there's we want too some much, fluffy things <laughs> there's too much to talk about every episode but yeah mammals will feature but i'll just briefly mention now so obviously um voles and mice will very much use grass as somewhere to nest and in fact we have come across mice nests in gardens and they make this really very i think this is the wood mouse they make a very cute little ball and they obviously make it nice and warm with lots of grass woven together but yeah those voles and mice will feed on or might feed on the seeds of various grasses and they'll also use it as shelter for when they're foraging and of course like as i said before the more mice and voles you have the more of their predators that you'll attract and i'm talking about really exciting things like weasels and stoats owls and yeah owls and kestrels and i mean we're talking from our urban garden we're unlikely to get this but i know some of you listening are very lucky and have much bigger gardens out in the countryside so yeah these things really do come to people's gardens if yeah, there's there are, space for them but then there are owls in the local park there are and we have heard the tawny owl like dipping down into forest fields actually yeah um, exactly and also when we've been out and about we've often seen uh what, what you call like a, a run amongst some you can really make out like tunnels through the long grass obviously used regularly and we think that's from a weasel yeah in addition to the mammals, moving back to the, the bugs. <laughs> back to the beetles. <laughs> back to the beetles. Yeah, I've talked before about uh, beetles and how much they really do love uh, tussocky and rough grass. And they love burrowing amongst the roots and living in amongst the, the tall stems as well. And you can enhance the habitat for beetles as well by actually creating a beetle bank. And that's where you allow longer grass to grow on a sort of area of raised ground. And by that, I just mean like a mound of earth. Yeah, so like lots of people will have these beetle hotels and things and sometimes people go out and buy them but you can get the same effect by just leaving a bit of your lawn to grow long. Exactly. And moving on from beetles, we have not really mentioned these guys before yet either and that's the grasshoppers and crickets. Oh yes. Of which they are very much starting to make their song. I think you would call it a song. It's very beautiful yeah, I think so. in the evenings. And in the UK we actually have 23 species of cricket and 11 grasshoppers. So it's not masses. And I feel like we could definitely do some identifying next time we're out and about, if we can catch them fast enough. We actually heard one this week in a garden. Yeah. It really confused me. It was up in the tree, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was above head height in a tree. Mm. I didn't know what it was. No, we, we Until, we, well, I, I eventually realised. But yeah, I don't think I've ever heard one in a tree before. Really interesting. I've come across grasshoppers living in Boston Ivy. They seem to enjoy that on walls. Oh, yeah. And wisteria, actually. But Yes, I have come across that. You're right. And actually, our most common grasshopper, or one of our most common grasshoppers, the field grasshopper, which is also found throughout most of the UK, lays its eggs in the soil. And then when they emerge, they mainly feed on grasses. And those guys are, they're fairly big and quite brownish. And the upper side can be quite mottled or even striped. So that's another one to look out for if you've got some long grass. In terms of attracting predators, the amphibians and reptiles that we can find in our garden are also very voracious and will eat things like crickets and grasshoppers and worms and slugs and snails as well. And in episode seven, we talked all about ponds and how important they are in our book review. But we also mentioned the importance of having areas of long grass near your pond so that those amphibians that use it to breed in have a sheltered path from it and that's so they can get to cooler shadier and damper areas for their hibernation and also to wait out the hot summer days like today for example it's absolutely roasting yeah because a lot of the amphibians will leave ponds actually people think they're in ponds all year round but they actually leave them for most of the year yeah but then they still need these yeah sheltered little spots to crawl around into yeah and we like to actually grow grass right up to the pond's edge now um just so that there's actually this this egress this uh option for them to get out without frying to a crisp <laughs> yeah that's right and also on that note having long grass next to ponds is really good for dragonflies because the nymphs like to crawl out of the pond exactly. and then they need to dry out somewhere so mm -hmm. they crawl up the grass stems and they wait there let their casing dry out and then they can spread their wings and fly off 
Exactly. So it's not just the habitat in its own right, it's the habitat in conjunction with other habitats, which also makes such a huge difference to wildlife. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because I didn't have dragonflies, even though I love them so much. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Don't know why I didn't include them. Anyway. Yeah, we've just seen some in the last week. I know. Oh, yeah, we have. Oh, that was exciting. Oh, I didn't include that in the sightings. I'm going to quickly do it now. We saw dragonfly nymphs, which is great in a pond that we put in for a client, yeah. which is brilliant because they were massive, which means that they must have been feeding for at least, I would think, two years. Mm-hmm. So when we thought there was nothing in the pond that first year, there were dragonfly nymphs in there. So if you've put in a pond and it's in its first year and you think that nothing's happening, you never know. There might be dragonfly nymphs and all sorts of other stuff on the bottom of the pond that you just can't see. The long grass next to a pond also provides the food that things like toads, frogs and newts need to live on. So like I said, the crickets and grasshoppers, slugs and worms. And another thing that also will feed on all of those things is the grass snake. And we have one garden, I think, where one has been spotted. We've not seen it, but our customer has certainly seen a grass snake in her garden. Um, and again, they will hunt for their prey amongst long grass. So again, another huge benefit of, of keeping that habitat available yeah beautiful things completely harmless definitely something you'd want in your garden i really want to spot one so for those of you who are disappointed in only having grass in your non-mown patches hopefully that little introduction has encouraged you to keep it to benefit wildlife in general and increase the biodiversity of your garden but of course, as well as the general benefits of the habitat of long grass, like other plants, there are also some really specific interactions between different species of grasses and various animals. They don't just feed us humans. I don't mean the animals, I mean the grasses. They also form a huge part of the diets of so many other critters, in particular the butterflies and moths. They have really specific food plant interactions. So for the next section on this, I thought we should look in detail at a handful of common grass species that you are likely to find in your garden and to really showcase how beautiful they are and also obviously what, what species you might attract by having them. So in the UK, we actually have 160 species of grass across 54 genera. So that's quite a lot of different species. And as most people will probably be able to tell, a lot of them do look really similar. Yeah, by so, the way, we are including ourselves in these lots oh my of goodness. people because we are, we were saying actually earlier, we're not even beginners. We're, we basically haven't even started yeah. with learning to ID these, which we're not proud of, but it's just... They're just not something we've got around to really paying attention to yet, but it, they they will be something we're going to have to learn to ID much better. Exactly. And I think it is, um, well, probably the, one of the main reasons why we've never really tried is because it's a daunting prospect to try and identify something which looks so similar across, you know, you go to a nature reserve or, or a garden where there's some long grass and you just see this mass of like very similar looking seed heads, but you know they're different, but it's the detail that is quite scary. Yeah, you just need somebody to show you. Yes. On that note, this week's gardening correspondent, Sarah Shuttleworth, also known as the Mighty Moth Girl, has shared with us an excellent video that she made on getting to grips with the basics of the anatomy of grass. And when you know your ligules from your lemmas and your glooms from your awns, <laughs> which I don't, which we don't, you can use any grass ID key to identify what it is you're actually looking at. And she even used, I absolutely love this, but she even used props to help identify the different parts. And I mean, it was really high quality blue Peter is how I describe it. <laughs> That's great. So we recommend heading we'll give over. You a badge. Yeah, we're going to share the link and we really recommend you heading over to YouTube to watch that. Yeah, Thank really you. is brilliant. Go Thank ahead and you. look at it. Yes, thank you very much, Sarah. So when we came to choosing some species to showcase, what we thought would be useful, seeing as there are 160 species of grass in the UK, is to take a couple of the most common grass species that you might get in a box of grass seed. That's the native ones, I should add. And also another two which are pretty widespread and will happily grow in a garden setting and then to just basically sell them to you. Yeah, because when you look at your lawn, you might just think that's grass. But of course, if you go and buy a box of grass seed and actually look at the side, there are probably four or five different species mm -hmm. in there. And each of those is, you know, a, a beautiful plant in its own right, if you can just let it 
grow up. This is it. I, whenever I see a mown lawn, I can't help but just realise that this is like, you know, potentially millions of individual tiny plants. It, the, my, my mind just blows a little bit whenever I look at that, but I'm quite simple, so... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I've got two grass seed species and I've got, as I said, two more that you are likely to find in gardens. Nice. So the first of the lawn species is Festuca rubra subspecies littoralis. And its common name is the slender red fescue. You find this in usually in a box of fine lawn seed. And this is a coastal subspecies of the wider red fescue species, which is hugely variable and there are loads of different subspecies which are adapted to lots of different types of habitat across the world it's highly nutritious for the gramnivores out there and gramnivores are species that eat grass for example rabbits are a very well-known gramnivore and it gets its name from the flowering spikes which start green but then often turn a reddish brown so in sunlight it's really pretty it it basically just makes it sort of glow red it's a really really beautiful plant um, again which you wouldn't know if you never let it grow up so this particular subspecies is very fine leaved and it's a really prized grass for turfs but also it's really really good for a few species of mostly butterflies and moths actually so the the lepidoptera and it's eaten by the larvae of the marbled white butterfly which is really distinctive black and white large butterfly flies in july and august uh, across the south of england and it can be seen in gardens, importantly. And also the grayling butterflies uh, also depend on red fescue species for their larval food plant. The second grass species that is very commonly found in lawn seed mixes is Agrostis capillaris, which is the common bent grass. Its flower heads come out in May and June and they're really branched and quite open. So they actually create this pretty reddish purple haze over their mat of leaves. Really another really beautiful one. And like Festuca rubra, it's a lower growing perennial grass to around 50 centimetres tall. And the larvae of a few, again, Lepidoptera species favour eating this. So that includes lots of them, actually, like the wall, the small heath, the meadow brown and also the gatekeeper butterflies. Now, thinking about the grasses that you might just be lucky enough to find in your garden, there is one called the false brome or the wood false brome, which is Brachypodium sylvaticum. And interestingly, we didn't know this until I did the research for this, but we've seen this in one of our customers' gardens. So I'm really excited to now identify it. And you, I like to have it, especially if you have a dappled shade woodland garden. It's much coarser than red fescue, but it's also more clump forming. So it's, you're not going to get like a mat of it. And it's about 30 to 90 centimetres tall, so quite a big range. And it has these really, really fresh, bright green yellow leaves, which have a really nice, elegant arch to them. The flowers are arranged in a spike and they're usually quite nodding. And each collection of flowers actually has a protrude, a long protrusion on it called an awn. This is another technical term, but it basically looks like a long bristle. So when you've got a lot of them together, you get this sort of long, hairy protrusion coming out. A bit like you might find on the ears of barley, actually. That's Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that in combination with these arching bright green leaves makes for a really elegant plant in a woodland setting mm, nice i've never se- now you've pointed that plant out to me earlier i recognize the one you're talking about yes. but we i don't think i've actually seen the flower heads of that yet so i'll look forward to that later in the year yeah and as a bonus on doing this research we're really excited to find out that there are loads and loads of species which use it as a food plant and that includes eight species of butterfly including the checkered skipper And that's its main food plant, actually, for the larvae. And also the speckled wood, which incidentally we saw in that same garden. So I like to make these connections. Exactly. And other things that eat it, I cannot possibly list them all, but it includes some flies, some true bugs, and, and also lots of moths, for example, the marbled white spot, which is quite a widespread moth across, across the UK. And the final grass that I wanted to showcase that you can grow in your garden or you might find in your garden is the Breeza media or the quaking grass. And this is a grass that most gardeners, before they've become enlightened to garden for wildlife, uh, will be likely to be familiar with. And it's regularly grown in borders as an ornamental. And it actually features on the Gardener's World magazine online. Yeah, you see it in a lot of show gardens and things, don't you? It's a really good foil behind other... other 
it's very dainty, yes. But what I found interesting is that on that same website, they said that it has no known benefit for wildlife, which is just wrong, Gardener's World. <laughs> what are you doing? I need to get a buzzer sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the seed heads of breezer media are actually an excellent food for our farmland birds, such as yellowhammers, linnets, greenfinches, and also our beloved house sparrows. It gets to about 35 centimetres tall. And as I said, it's really delicate. It's got these quaking green slash yellow locket shaped flowers, which are held up on fine branches. Sometimes they're tinged a bit purple and they do sort of dance really gently in the wind. It's just such a lovely species. Yeah, it's a difficult one to describe how it moves in the wind. It's, oh, I, re- I really can't do it justice. You can probably go on YouTube and, and type it in, and you'll see some videos of it. It's and wonderful. I, I did share a photo of it on Twitter and Facebook as well. Oh, yeah. It's one of the ones that featured. It's the only one I could identify out of the ones that we took pictures of. Anyway. <laughs> so, yes, hopefully, all of that has whetted your whistles for appreciating grass. And even better, I hope some of you are inspired to go out and learn to recognize some of the species we have in in this country and as usual we've only talked about the very very tip of the iceberg when it comes to grasses and as i alluded to grassland is such an important habitat in the uk and worldwide but as usual humans are in the process of making it increasingly scarce in the countryside through increased agricultural intensification and development so actually these patches that we grow in our garden are probably if not already, set to become more and more important in joining up that habitat for different creatures out there. Yes, and the diversity of grass that we're used to having in the country, like Ellie said, is sadly declining because a lot of farms, especially um, the livestock farms, they'll basically spray off the grasses every year and then sow them with ryegrass, won't they, which is better for making silage. So where even just a meadow full of grass, not even full of flowers, maybe 50 years ago, 100 years ago, would have been full of diversity, different plants. Uh, it's sadly not the case anymore. So if you've done no mo may and you've ended up with just grass, then be happy about that because it's absolutely beautiful. And as we mentioned, Mighty Moth Girl is going to be our correspondent this week and she's going to be describing some of the plants that she finds growing in her garden at home. wildlife garden but it's also for people too um i'm sarah but also known as mighty moth girl um i'm actually a botanist um but i also have a real passion for moths hence uh, the name um we moved here in 2019 and ever since then we've been sort of working on our garden which was a fairly blank canvas to be honest we're very lucky it's a really good sized garden um we've obviously got large lawn areas um we've got two young children so you know having areas to play was was important for us um in terms of what was here already we're really lucky we've got three good size apple trees um of which we harvest some for ourselves but also the local village come and pick the apples and then they get made into the um village apple juice that's for sale um, we have an enormous magnolia tree um, and also we have some mixed hedging that's sort of a mix of non-native and native species. It's got sort of brambles running through and some native species like ash and blackthorn and hawthorn and that sort of thing, which is all really nice. Um, we've got sort of a smaller raised part of our garden which we call the little garden um it was just a um, a very sort of blank square of lawn um however now we've created um big herbaceous borders all the way around the outside um and last year during the first lockdown we created our very first pond which is very small um just standing here next to it we created it uh, using just a pond liner we've got a very deep area then another shallow area and then a sort of beached area and we've surrounded it with some blue lyre stone that we had in the garden as well. But it's um, with the beached area, um, animals can get in and out fairly easily. We've planted it up with uh, mostly native species. Um, we've got some common spike rush. Um, we've got a miniature reed mace, so Typha um, minima, uh, which sort of has that classic bulrush um, style to it, but in little round heads. Um, we've also got some marsh woundwort that we've put in that's growing all the way around and is really nicely naturalised. 
Other species include lesser spearwort, some penny royale, which is a type of mint, um, some water starwort, um, and then around the outside we've got lots of planting and big naturalised teasel, which has appeared, um, and other perennials which can provide shelter. Oh, and some marsh marigold as well. Over in the main part of the garden, we've got large areas that we've um, let grow long, either underneath the trees where it's very much sort of a mix of docks and nettles and things like that. Um, In the centre of the garden, we've left two big patches to grow long, which are mostly just grasses and spotted medic. Um, The other meadow areas uh, we've got, I've put in some plug plants that I've grown from native UK wildflower seed um, with knapweeds, birdsfoot trefoil, um, hedge bed straw, ladies bed straw, meadow vetchling, that sort of thing. We've also got um, uh, our second pond that we only put in about two weeks ago, a week ago probably, um, which is much, much larger um, with a very deep area and then lots of shelved areas and a big wide beach. Um, We've also banked it up around the back, uh, partly to hide the pond liner, and I've planted lots more wildflower plugs there. and we have our, one of our meadow areas abutting the, the pond. So you've got nice tall, long grass for any creatures to be able to sort of shelter in, um, in and out of the pond um, and the hedge behind as well. Um, in the pond itself, we've got ragged robin, we've got spearworts, water plantain, marsh marigold, um, water forget-me-not. And it's naturalising really nicely. Probably one of the things that um, wildlife most like about our garden, other than the fact that it's absolutely stuffed with as many plants as um, flowering plants as we can, is that we're not too tidy. So we don't pull up all of the weeds in the corners and that are sort of growing up um, scraggedy areas. We, do, you know, they sort of add to the sort of feel of the garden. We also leave a long grass sort of weedy border all the way around the outside, alongside any fences that don't have hedges yet, um, or next to the shed and the outbuildings, and that gives everything a little way to sort of run around the outside. So it feels like it's always got shelter. One of the nice things um, about this garden and me being interested in moths is I have a moth trap that I put out and you would be amazed at the species that are flying around in your garden at night. Honestly, there are some spectacular species and I know you guys have always been plugging um, how brilliant moths are. Um, I mean, we've got all the hawk moths pretty much here. Um, The poplar hawk moth, um, elephant, small elephant, the privet hawk moth. Um, and they are just stunning. We also were lucky enough to have garden tiger last year, which is my personal favourite, hugely declining species. Uh, we get lots of other tiger moths here, scarlet tiger, cream spot tiger, ruby tiger. One of the other really nice things about having these wild areas in your garden is that sometimes you find really interesting caterpillars, uh, especially nettles. Nettles are amazing for loads of different species, and in particular butterflies and moths. Uh, and when we do find some of those caterpillars, my, my children um, are just fascinated with them. So we bring them inside and we raise them and feed them lots and lots of nettles and whatever they need. And I've got specific equipment to do all of that. All in all, my conclusions would be that this has been a steep learning curve. There's so much we still need to know. Um, but we're really, really enjoying the process of creating a garden both for wildlife and for us to enjoy. Oh, that's brilliant, isn't it? So, so wonderful. Can we visit, Sarah? Oh, I wish. Yeah, it sounds like a nature reserve. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic that you can have that much diversity in your garden. And especially once you start to recognise what these different plants are. It's just like having so many different friends in the garden, isn't it? You can go out and once you know all the different characters, it just, oh, it's just good fun to go out there and have a look. And again, you'll soon be a dab hand in no time. But one of the plants that grows in the sort of grassland that Ellie was talking about earlier and can be grown at home is the Sanguisorba officinalis, which is our native plant of the week. Yeah, the Sanguisorba, also known as the Great Burnet, the Common Burnet, the Greater Salad Burnet, or the Burnet Bloodwort. And Sanguisorba basically means blood stauncher and where officinalis denotes that it has medicinal uses, which I'll go on to in a little bit. And Sanguisorba has really attractive compound leaves, which are arranged in a pinnate form. And this means that the leaves are actually made of a number of leaflets. And these are arranged in three to seven pairs, which are opposite each other up the leaf stalk. It's often described as resembling a feather, that leaf structure, the pinnate leaf structure. Each leaflet is on a stalk and is also toothed along their edge. 
The flowers are held on long branching, almost wiry stems and they emerge in June, July and they will persist all the way through the summer into the autumn. And they're kind of funny, aren't they? They're sort of they're not your classic flower from a distance. They're, well, they're actually a collection of really tiny flowers, but they're shaped in a sort of oval lollipop. And I've seen people describe them as fluffy, but I'd say they're more velvety. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I reckon so. Velvety buttons, like bought like little ovals on stems. It's very hard to describe because they're just, well, they're just fascinating. Yeah, there'll be a photo to go along with this podcast, Definitely. which you can see. Yeah, we need some visuals. And they're also maroon in colour. Yeah, I think they're the sort of, they're like the red wine gums. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly that, it. that colour. <laughs> the plant can be quite tall, so up to about one and a half metres and around 50 centimetres wide in a sort of big clump. Yeah. And when you get an established plant, they have lots of these flowering spikes, don't they? Yeah, they can They can get quite big overall. I mean, they're, they're a chunky plant. They're really, yeah. they're good. They're quite a long-lived herbaceous perennial and they're usually found in neutral grassland and that neutrality, I'm talking about the soil, so neutral pH. And it can be found on a range of soil structures from alluvial and that just means any soil that's left behind from rivers or from maybe a flood or peaty soils and they can be in dry or damp unimproved pastures as well as hay meadows and also marshy meadows so they really are a grassland species and they look fantastic when those nodding little button heads are just wafting over the long grass heads it looks really fantastic yeah they're stunning i've seen them growing wild in marshy grass Mm. where there have been boardwalks that you have to walk through because it's been that wet and in yeah very dry yeah dry hay meadow type habitats but yeah, as I say, the, the flower heads sort of punctuate the flower spikes of tall grasses and looks really fantastic. In terms of population, our continued improvement of pastures, and I say improvement in inverted commas, but I mean turning fields into... Ryegrass. <laughs> ryegrass has caused a slight reduction in, in their population size. They can be found as a native across a huge area. And in general, it's found in temperate Europe from South Iceland down to Spain temperate Asia to Iran, China and Japan and also northern North America and this range is actually described as circumpolar boreo temperate. Mm, nice. Yeah that's a nice one. Well that's got to describe quite a few of our plants that we've talked about then. I think so yeah it's the first time I've read that though it's, it's a good good term and in the UK its distribution is largely concentrated in central to southern England and also central Wales. It's very very rare in Ireland. In terms of its history, it's quite interesting as well. And Well, actually history and also its uses now. And in traditional Chinese medicine, it's extensively used to cool the blood, to stop bleeding and also to heal wounds, which I think is where the the blood wort name obviously stems from. Yeah, and that, definitely. And that was also the case for herbalists in this country many years ago. And various species of sanguisorbo are also known to show anti-cancer properties as well as have antioxidative and antiviral properties, which is also really, it's just a really good plant for medicine in general. It's also an edible plant and the young leaves and flower buds can be harvested and eaten either raw or cooked. We haven't tried this one. Yes, I have. Oh, did you like it? No. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, apparently it tastes cucumbery. Is that yeah. true? Yeah vaguely okay fine yeah it's like the um because it's called the greater salad burnet but the smaller burnet there's a there's a couple of different native burnets and the small one is just called the salad burnet and the leaves taste the same but they're sort of like they've got an aftertaste of cucumber but if you want to taste cucumber just eat some <laughs> cucumber you naysayer <laughs> yeah. it tastes mostly of leaf Okay, well, I'm also going to say you can make a tea from either the fresh or dried leaves. So I think that probably would be better. Oh, okay, actually. fine. Yeah, I think the um, flavour might come out more then. But more uh, closer to my heart is that in Cumbria, people used to make wine from the crimson flowers until Ooh. about the 1950s, actually. That's got to be a glorious colour if it comes out the same yeah, as it goes I, in. I don't know about the flavour. I mean, my homebrew is never that good. So I don't know, maybe it's just me. If it <laughs> tastes like cucumber then it tastes better than most of the homebrew we've made so far. Yep. So now it's time to move on to the sexual antics of the Greater Burnet. I hate to say this, guys, but this is a bit of a short section compared to other plants we've covered. 
but it's self and also insect pollinated. And the flower heads, which are about one to three centimeters long, are actually comprised of lots and lots of tiny flowers. And each of those flowers have four sepals each. And we've mentioned the sepal before, but just to recap, it is a structure which protects the flower bud. And it's usually green, but it, it can also be colourful, as in the case of this plant. Yeah, so in some plants, the sepal protects the petals yeah. as they open up. But in the case of the sanguisorba and many other plants beside, they just dump the petals. Yeah. So you only get the sepals. Exactly. So there's no petals in sanguisorba at all. And these tiny little flowers open successively from the base of the inflorescence, which is the, the little thimble or button, uh, all the way to the top. So as I mentioned just a second ago, it's self-pollinated as well as insect pollinated. The flowers are bisexual, which is another way of saying that they're hermaphrodite, which is a term that we often use in yep. the sexual antics section. And they have four dark crimson stamens, which hold the pollen, and also one short female stigma, which is the female part of the plant, which is sort of brush topped, which the pollen will be transported onto. So when each flower is pollinated successfully, and I'll talk a bit about the species that do that in a second, a seed is produced and they are held singularly in a sort of dry nut. That's the form they take. And that is called an achene or an achene. Or an achene. Or an achene. <laughs> this is when the problem of when you learn botany from books. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. Yeah, they need to come with one of those CDs of like a pronunciation guide. And, or a pronunciation guide. <laughs> <laughs> okay moving on moving on while i said it is a plant of meadows and it does look really fantastic amongst grasses it really is also a fantastic plant in its own right for any border and we've actually put it into uh, a cottage garden style border in a customer's garden it looks absolutely fantastic doesn't it yeah yeah a lot of these meadow plants you can just take them out of the meadow and, and grow them individually and they they look beautiful well it's also really low maintenance as well which is is what people a lot of people do look for in their garden so yeah it's a really fantastic plant so how do you get it in your garden well, it enjoys soil which doesn't completely dry out and it wants to be in full sun or partial shade. But in general, it's really, really tolerant of such a huge range of soil types, including acidic, clay, moist soils, well-drained soils as well, and also light and sandy soils. So as long as it doesn't completely dry out or if you're watering it, then it will pretty much survive anywhere in your garden. The only thing to look out for is that it does grow rhizomatously, which is, and a rhizome is basically a modified stem, which is, is like a root and it grows underneath the ground and creeps sideways. So it, it can clump up quite fast. So you do have to make sure it has enough room to grow sideways. Yeah, and that's the same as loads of different border plants. Precisely. Like geraniums, a lot of the geraniums, yeah. the macrorhizum, they all do the same thing. So. Exactly. As long as you're prepared just to split it every now and again, then it works absolutely perfectly in a border. The other point to make is that it probably does need a bit of staking. So as long as you just stake those those flower heads early on in the season, then it will hold them up. And, and they actually can persist all the way into winter once they've gone to seed and they look really great with some frost on them. Oh, so. they look glorious. And... I've seen lots and lots of spiders. Again, they just like the tall structure, but I've seen lots of spiders making mm. their webs between um, sanguisorba stems yeah. in, uh, you know, nature reserves and things. And they look just beautiful, in, either in the dew in the summer, on a summer morning, or as Ellie said, in the frost in the autumn. Yeah, perfect. So you can actually grow uh, greater burnet from seed in spring or autumn and it's recommended that you sow it into a tray in a cold frame. It needs about 10 to 14 degrees for germination to happen, which in spring and autumn is probably the best time for that. Now, don't expect the seed to germinate straight away. It actually takes around two months. So don't feel like you failed if you haven't see seen any seedlings emerge within you know a month even. Just wait it out and they probably will emerge eventually. Yeah, and if you've sown them in the autumn and it's just got really cold just leave them because they might well come up the following spring as well. Don't chuck them out. Exactly. And once they have germinated and they've grown up a bit and they're big enough to handle, you prick them out and put them into individual pots and then grow them on in those individual pots until again, they've got a strong root system that means they can handle being in a border. Top tip. If you've potted something up, just wait until you see the roots poking out the bottom of the pot, then you know it's ready to move on. Alternatively, you can also direct sow in spring wherever you want it. 
And again, once you know what the leaves look like, you can figure out which of the plants is the burnet coming up. Now, as with most of the native plants that we talk about, you can very easily get hold of some seed from a wildflower supplier, or you could alternatively buy plugs of smaller plants, or you could sometimes find them in garden centres if you're lucky, because they are grown, again, as, as a herbaceous perennial. Or if you know a very generous person who has some in their garden already, but wants to reduce its size, then you could very kindly ask for a division of it in spring or autumn, which is the best time to split it. Cultivars to look out for include Tanner, which has actually been awarded the Award of Garden Merit by the RHS. And that is because it's a dwarf version of the Sangrasorba officinalis. A lot of them are around 1.5 to 2 metres tall. So if you've just got a smaller border or you want it towards the front of your border, then Tanner is a really, really good one to go for. And I have to admit, like the rest are very, very similar in terms of form to the regular species but you can find cultivars such as morning select red thunder and also japan and i think all of them are maybe just slightly more floriferous than the than the regular species version but but they'll all do the same thing for wildlife yeah i think some of them have slightly larger flowers as well the flower heads a bit bit longer now pollination who is that done by well the RHS actually has Sangrasorba officinalis as one of their plants of pollinators, so it indicates how good it is for pollinators. And it's actually mainly pollinated by flies, such as the Scathophaga stercoraria, which is a character that we were introduced to just last episode by Ben, the yellow dung fly. Yeah, and I've got a confession to make here. Yes, you have. Yeah. You've been a very naughty boy. <laughs> no. Well, I described it as a coprophagus fly which means it eats poo but it's only the larval stage it's only the maggot that eats poo and also there's another fly the yellow face blowfly which is also known as the fly of the dead <laughs> which i absolutely love will also eat the pollen and nectar from from this plant that sounds like a great horror movie to make i know it does doesn't it should we uh, trademark it yeah <laughs> and there's also another blowfly that feeds from it called the common green bottle of which we've seen lots in our garden, actually. They're actually really beautiful, like shiny green flies. Really fantastic. But also it is really, really favoured by bees, particularly the white and buff-tailed bumblebees, but also other bees as well. As well as those pollinators, it's also a really good food plant for lots of different species. But I would just put one little question out there for our listeners. If any of you know if the seeds are eaten by anything, particularly birds, then I would really like to know because I haven't read anything about it, but I just suspected that maybe they were. They've got to be taken by goldfinches and things. Possibly, that's what I was thinking. But or maybe I... even mice. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like we were talking about some of the grass, lots of mice are light enough to climb up stems of plants like this and go and nibble the seeds exactly so yeah if you do know that please do get in touch but its leaves are also really really important for various insects as well there's more beetles that use it as a food plant there are more flies as well and also sawflies which although they're called flies they sit in the hymenoptera group which is the bees wasps and ants family and also the larvae of the peppered moth which is a really beautiful moth so yeah, it's really fantastic for lots of different species. And that brings us to the end of this week's Native Plant of the Week and I think to the podcast as well, unless you've got something else to add, Ben. Just a final thing on what's coming up, which is next time we are going to be talking about our next book for our book club, which is Making of a Wildflower Meadow by Pam Lewis. And she talks a lot about the trials and tribulations of growing a wildflower meadow at home, including a lot of the grasses and the wildflowers that we've talked about as part of our native plant of the week over the last few episodes excellent we should also mention our gofundme which is called get the wildlife podcast some gear so as we've said before we're not trying to make money out of the podcast at all but we are just trying to cover our costs and we're going here there and everywhere to meet all these people we're interviewing and the equipment to do those interviews in the fields costs a fair bit as well so if you'd like to contribute to the podcast and help us cover those costs please follow the links to that in the show notes and finally if you want to get in touch with us either to drop us a question for our special q a which is coming up in august on the 12th 
or if you just want to send us a photo maybe you've seen something on a sanguis orbor and you want to let us know what you've seen in the past then you can get in touch either on facebook which is facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast or you can go to twitter at twitter.com forward slash the wild gdn and then in terms of watching that live q a we are in the process of setting up our own youtube channel where we're also going to be posting little videos of things we've been up to in the garden here at home as well brilliant so with that said until the next episode it's keep gardening and goodbye bye